Go ahead and turn to Acts 13. We are continuing our verse-by-verse, line-by-line study through the Bible. We're going through the book of Acts currently to kind of just give a prelude to what we're talking about today. Um, I want to tell a little story that hopefully I think most of us can probably relate to. A time ago, pre-COVID, because I haven't been to the like an actual gym. I work at home now, but uh, since then when they closed them down. But um, the gym was a, a fruitful place of ministry for me. You know, you, you know, it's, and this might be different for some of you, but you know, you just in a small town that we live in, when you go to the gym, you see the same people like every day. So you start to develop relationships with them. Sometimes that relationship is just like, oh, hey, nice workout, or like, you know, you just give them a little head nod, uh, and 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 you start to recognize people or whatnot. And sometimes you start out conversations and. And it's a place of kind of like building up. You run into people from church and you talk about Jesus and stuff like that. And other people over here and then they come and talk to you like, oh, are you a Christian? So anyways, it's been a fruitful place of ministry for me. And so this one day I'm in there and there's a, a guy that I'd been seeing coming in for a couple of months working out and hadn't formally met him or nothing. Kind of done the head nod thing like, oh, nice workout. Um, but like didn't know who he was. But he came in one day and he just looked totally torn up like I don't know what he had happened to him like recently or the night before, but just looked like he was in really bad shape. And so I really felt like pressed upon myself, like I should say something to this guy, like seeing it, see if he's all right. Like what is going on in this guy's life? You know, like don't want to talk about it or, you know, whatever, which is kind of weird for not knowing someone. But as a follower of Jesus, like we, we should have the Lord's compassion on people. And ultimately, in one way or another, as a follower of Jesus, my hope is that, you know, this guy either knows the Lord and if he doesn't, or, and I can encourage him in that, but if he doesn't, like, I can introduce him to who can give him some sort of relief, which is the Lord, ultimately. And so I'm thinking about these things, and maybe you can relate to this even before I talk to this guy. And the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm talking myself out of like, no, 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 I don't want to say nothing. You know, what if he gets offended? Or what if I say the wrong thing? Or what the, what do I, what the heck do I even say to him? Like, like I just make something that the Lord really makes simple in his word, the good news is what I'm talking about, so complicated in my mind when I'm thinking about it, and it discourages me. And I believe that that's part of our flesh, but also it's the enemy, because he does not want you to tell people the good news, because that is what saves people, right? And they got to hear the good news to be saved. They believe it, receive it, and be saved. And so, um, you know, that's a battle I think all of us can kind of relate to, and so this section of scripture is really good because it reminds us of the simplicity of what it should look like when we're telling people of Jesus. If you guys remember a couple of weeks ago, we went through Acts 13 verses 4 through 12, and we saw a great example of what it looked like to move forward in the will of the Lord, like what that should look like in a believer's life, some things to consider. And as we saw that as the Holy Spirit had sent Barnabas and Saul out from the church in Antioch to take the gospel to all ends of the earth. This is where the gospel started spreading to the surrounding regions. And one of the principles we saw, or one of the principles I focused on as they went out, was that they went out proclaiming God's word about Jesus to people, or preaching the good news, telling people about Jesus with whoever they came into contact with. And this week, we're going to see a great example as we continue on in Acts 13 of what exactly it was that they were sharing with people about jesus like the specific things they were they were doing and talking to people about the lord or sharing the good news again as i pointed out in the beginning something that i think we can all stress over so 
we want to pay attention to these examples because that's what they're giving given in scripture for us to glean from to learn from so that we can go like oh i can do what he did because that's really simple i just stick to these things and explain these things and and god will use it you know i can leave the rest to him and so it's a great section to learn what to say when you're telling people about jesus so just tuck that in your minds as we're going through this so we're going to pick it up in verse 13 let me pray one more time for a blessing on the word and then we'll start going through it dear heavenly father lord god again thank you so much for your word thank you for the example it gives us in really all areas of our life there's black and white things that we can know are truth that the word talks about but then there's also principles that we can apply to all the different gray areas or areas where we're trying to figure out what exactly your will is we have all these principles to um, learn from and examples of other believers that are there for us to follow and so lord we want to come here with like uh, open minds open hearts not thinking we know everything because even when we know it it's, it's often the simple things that are the hardest to do we need to be reminded of them for our own benefit so we can not only hear and agree with them but we can be doers of them and live them out in our lives so i pray that you would speak this word into each of us in that specific way we need to hear it so we know how we need to apply it in our lives so we can experience that blessedness that comes with not only those who hear the word but obey it in jesus name amen all right starting in verse 13 it says now paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, which remember was on Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. That's where they had gone to on their first missionary journey. And they came to Perga in Pamphylia, which basically would be heading northeast uh, into modern day Turkey is where they're at. And John left them, this would be John Mark, and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, this not being the same Antioch that they were sent out from, but another one that was located in a modern-day Turkey in the region known as Galatia, which should sound familiar if you know your Bibles, because later on, Paul writes a follow-up letter to the churches that were planted in this first missionary journey that we know as the book of Galatians, all right? Just kind of give you an idea on where they're at right now. Now, one thing that I think it's interesting to note about this missionary team here. And this is a slight thing. You might not have never noticed this, but here in the uh, verse 13, it's kind of flipped in how it's referred to. Basically in verse 13, it's referred to as Paul and his companions. But up to this point, most uh, or notably or kind of early, um, most recently in Acts thirteen seven, the team was referred to as Barnabas in Saul, with it seeming that Barnabas was the one that was kind of leading this group. If you guys remember, back in the church of Antioch when it was first being planted, Barnabas went and got Saul, who becomes Paul, because he needed someone to help him teach the word to these early believers. So he goes and gets him and brings him alongside of him. But now all of a sudden it seems like this call on Paul's life to be in a leadership position in God's church is made more evident. You know, at this point, because it's he's referred to as the one kind of leading the show, if you will, for the Lord from here on out. And this leadership change, and this is just speculative. Don't take this as Holy Scripture because it doesn't say this. We don't know exactly why. It doesn't say exactly why. But this leadership change, I can't help but think, maybe, potentially could be one of the reasons why John Mark, 
who was Barnabas's cousin, according to Colossians 4.10, all of a sudden decides to leave this missionary journey and go home. Maybe not being okay with that change of who was being in charge. You know, cousin Barnabas wasn't there. Maybe he didn't agree with everything about Paul or didn't like his leadership style. So all of a sudden he decides to bug out. And this later becomes a point of a contention. Again, if you know your Bibles, if you really read through the book of Acts in Acts 15, Barnabas wants to take John Mark on a different missionary journey with Paul. And Paul's against it because he's like, no, he bailed on us last time. And he wants to take someone else. And so it actually leads to a sharp disagreement. And that's what it says. See, there are disagreements in the church. I tell people, if you're looking for a perfect church where everyone gets along, well, you can show me because I'd like to go to it. That doesn't happen, all right? Because we're all a bunch of messed up sinners that are saved by grace. So we still are in our flesh and we still have disagreements. Now, the important thing is repentance and restoration when we have those disagreements. But all that to say is even these guys in the early church, kind of the, the guys in leadership, they had their disagreements. And they basically end up going separate ways and taking who they want on different missionary journeys. So what the enemy would use for evil, God used for good because they just got to expand the gospel to even more places. All right. So all that to say is I just want to dwell on that a little bit. If, if it was, in fact, because of, you know, a disagreement with the leadership change, because this hits home. Because if you guys have been here for a while, you know, we went through a leadership change about four years ago, not under bad circumstances, it was under good circumstances. But all that to say is there was a transition in the church. And because some people didn't agree with that leadership change, there were people that I held near and dear that ended up leaving. But I think there's a principle we need to understand and we need to remember that can help us when there's decisions being made in God's church that maybe necessarily we don't understand We don't agree with it first. It's not what I would do personally. But we have to remember that when decisions are being made in God's church, at least, you know, this church, whether it being leadership or anything else, hopefully it's not because of what man wants to do, but it's in response to what the Lord wants to do. All right. Actually, it actually says that in Psalm 75-7 regarding leadership specifically that David says that it's only the Lord that raises up and lowers people. All right. But I I can honestly say that the desire of this leadership in this church ever since I've been a part of it is only to seek the Lord in his word and wait upon him to lead us in what he wants. Because not our church. We're just the ones he's chosen to kind of shepherd and oversee. It's his church. So he gets to call the shots. And that's what we look to him to do. And so when we say we, I don't like this, I, I disagree with what's being done, you know, I, and I, I'm just not, I'm not down with it and I'm going to leave or whatnot. We have to ultimately understand if that is the case, you know, it's the Lord deciding these things, then we're not disagreeing with people. We're disagreeing with God himself. All right. And unless for some reason, unless, unless we're talking about blatant sin, obviously if there's blatant sin going on, that is not the Lord's will, and those leadership need to be called out on it. And if they're not willing to repent, in some cases, they need to be removed, all right? That's clear in Scripture. But just like every area of our, every other area of our life, when God is telling us to do something that doesn't automatically make sense to us, or we might not understand, it might not be what, our personal, what we personally choose, we're called by faith to trust him, even if we don't understand at first. And we can do this because we know that anything he's deciding is always going to be good for us. 
It's always going to be the best thing for us, even if we don't understand that first. And we've seen that time and time again in our lives. And if you're willing to just trust him and move forward, he will prove that to you time and time again in your life, whether you understand it or not. All right. And hopefully one of the reasons you go to this church and you call it your church family is because you see and you trust that it's the leadership's heart to seek the will of the Lord in all things. I can honestly say before I was when I was going to this church, even before, way before I was ever in leadership, that's what allowed me to never question. Or, and I'm sure there'd be those moments in my life where like, I, I don't know if that's a good decision. I don't know if I would do that. But having said that, not questioning or getting upset about decisions being made that I didn't understand because I knew without a shadow, about a, a shadow of a doubt that the leadership's heart was to seek the will of the Lord, not their own. And I can get behind that. You know, if you want to do what God wants to do, if that's your only thing. That's that's what I want for my life, so I'm going to follow that. Amen? So I think that's good. I think that's good just to consider that, if that was the case. We don't know for sure, but it's a good thing to be reminded of. And on, it goes on to say, And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. This is what we call an open door. All right, Paul, he, he follows his typical practice of going to the synagogue, hoping for an opportunity to share Jesus with the Jews because the Jews knew scripture. So obviously of anyone, they should have recognized that all the prophetic speakings of the Messiah spoke of Jesus Christ. So in his mind, these are going to be the easiest people to preach to because I can use the word of God that I know to show them that Jesus was foretold and they should understand this. And a typical first century synagogue service would have started with an opening prayer, and then they'd read from the law, which would be the first five books of the Old Testament, and then a reading of the prophets. Verse 15 kind of alludes that. And then if there were any people there that were educated in the word, they were basically invited to come up and share or speak or exposit on what was read. Basically the same thing we kind of do as pastors. That's what they were invited to do. So these leaders of the synagogue must have understood to some degree that Paul and Barnabas were educated in the word. And they say, hey, guys, come on up and share on the word with us, all right? And I love how it's they asked him specifically to share a word of encouragement because that is exactly what the gospel is. That's why it's called the good news, all right? Let us not forget that because sometimes we can be talked into by the enemy or a flesh or the world in thinking that just because not everyone receives it as good news, that somehow that changes the message. No, no, no. It's good news. Whether people take it as that or not, you leave it with them, but it's good news no matter what, all right? So it's good news, and there's absolutely nothing discouraging about it if it's being explained properly. And so he goes on to give them this word of encouragement by giving them the gospel. It says in verse 16, So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hands, said, Men of Israel, or basically he's talking to the Jewish people. And then you who fear God, those would be Gentiles who had come to believe in the Jewish God. Because the gospel's for everyone, right? There's no one excluded from God's saving grace. So he's speaking to everyone and he says, listen. Now, what we're about to see is Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote quite a bit of the New Testament, his first recorded sermon, Okay. Something to pay attention to. And I'd encourage you at some point, write this down if you're a note taker or even if you're not, type it into your phone. But read Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 
and compare these two sermons together, all right? This is Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 that he was martyred and killed. He was stoned, basically, for his faith in Jesus. Because if you guys know Acts 7, if you've been following with us, who also was at that sermon present, watching, and a part of persecuting Stephen and in, in agreeing with that stoning? Who was that? Saul, right? This guy right now that's been saved and is sharing this message. And what you're going to, I think you're going to find, is that Paul's message is remarkably similar to Stephen's message, the very message that Paul, at one point when he was Saul, rejected, right? Now, here's why this is encouraging to me, and I think it should be encouraging to us, is that I would be willing to bet by the reaction of the people Stephen was preaching to. I mean, they weren't just falling asleep. They were stoning him and killing him, all right? So that's a tough crowd. But having said that, that uh, I just got a weird thought. Hopefully no one ever throws a rock at me while I'm up here preaching. That would... <laughs> That'd be pretty harsh. I've had had somebody come up and like, or just stand up and yell at me for like, like something. It was a crazy scene. But, um, anyways, all I had to say is, uh, the Lord gave me grace to deal with it. So, um, but I'd be willing to bet that Stephen probably faced some discouragement. He probably is like, is anything I'm saying even doing anything, Lord? Does it matter? Because, and, and again, it's just presumption. We don't know, but like, you know, I just think of myself, like when you're talking to somebody about Jesus and your expect, your hope is that they get saved, they receive it as good news. But when they're yelling at you for it and, and rejecting it blatantly and, and wanting to kill you for it, that can be pretty discouraging, all right? And, you know, but what this chapter shows me or should show us is that the fact that Paul's message is very similar to Stephen's is that... He must have been getting some of what Stephen was telling him, all right? Or it must have stuck in some way for at a later point when he believed Jesus Christ, he understood he needed him as a savior, that it came to remembrance like, oh, I've heard this before, you know? And, and the reason I think that should be encouraging to us is because we probably have people in our lives that we've been telling Jesus, talking to, talking about Jesus maybe for a long time, maybe for years, and we don't see any reaction. And it can be discouraging, like, is any of this making a difference? I thought the, 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 the gospel is the power and the salvation. I, I thought God's word doesn't return void. And those truths that we know in God's word are absolutely true. But you might never see the fruit or what God is doing, or you might not see it till years later. I mean, this is years later after he first heard this from Stephen. But nevertheless, your efforts in sharing God's word with people will not go wasted. All right? That is something we can have faith in. And so we do our part and we just share it and we keep praying for them and we let God his do, do his part and do the work that he's doing inside of them. Amen? Because it had an effect on Paul. He got saved eventually. And he went on to do many great things for the Lord. And many people got saved through it. Amen? His life was not wasted, or Stephen's effort was not wasted in any part, even if it was just for Paul, which I'm sure it wasn't. Amen? All right. And this leads to the first thing I want you to note of three things on how Paul preaches the good news to these people, or how he talks about Jesus to these people, is he, following the example of Stephen, utilizes the word of God. All right? We need to be utilizing the word of God when we share with people, which requires us to know it first and foremost. Now, that doesn't always mean that you're quoting scripture. 
Okay, like what I mean by that is you have the liberty to paraphrase. As you're going to see in the following verses, that's exactly what Paul does. He's not quoting scripture by scripture. He's summarizing what God's word says to tell them about Jesus, all right? So every time you're in church, every time you open up your word, you are learning God's word. And so when we're sharing Jesus with people, because we know God's word doesn't return void, it's important that we're sharing from that foundation, from that basis, all right? Because my opinions aren't guaranteed to do anything for anyone. But God's word will accomplish his purpose. Amen? Amen. All right. So utilize God's word. Paul goes on to say, verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with, or the idea is carried them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave him Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So what Paul is doing is taking a bunch of God's word and he's using it to summarize for these Jewish people or give them a survey of Israel's history and ultimately show them that all of this was for the purpose of. All of this culminated with God sending someone to save you and that was his son, Jesus Christ. Do you guys not see this? You should see this. Everything that was happening, all of our history, everything that's recorded in the Old Testament was leading up to this point. Jesus coming and living and dying and raised, being raised from the dead. And like with them, God in much the same way has had a plan even before your life began here on this earth to save you through faith in Jesus Christ. I have made, I'm not seen it. Before I was saved, I spent 20 years of my life not being saved. But I look back now and I see all of the evidence, all the times the Lord was drawing me to himself. All the things he was doing and preparing me for things that I didn't even know I was going to be used by him to do later on. But none of it was by accident. It was God's plan to do all those things. And maybe you're here today searching for some sort of meaning in your life. And you just can't seem to find it in anything in this world. We can still do that even after we're saved because we can keep looking for things in this life when we know that ultimately it can only be found in Jesus Christ. And I can say that with 100% confidence that whatever it is you're looking for, if you look to Jesus to find it, you will find what you're looking for. It may not be what you want, but it'll be something better because he's God and he knows that. And he cares about you greatly. It tells us in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, this is talking about Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And until you acknowledge your need for him, you will continue to search and search 
and never seem to find what you're looking for. How many of you guys can relate to that? I, I can. I, I tried to look the first 20 years of my life. I tried to find like contentment. I tried to find satisfaction. I tried to find peace in everything this world had to offer. And not all bad things. I mean, things that would say be good, like academic success or popularity amongst people, um, you know, sport, success in sports, relationships, whatever. Things that didn't necessarily have to be bad, but they all left me empty and wanting until somebody introduced me to Jesus. And I realized that's what I need. That's what I'm looking for. I received him as my Lord and Savior. And he's here today and would love to introduce himself to you if you find yourself in that place and all it involves you doing is acknowledging that you were an imperfect person. You don't do everything right. You do do things wrong. You need his sacrifice on the cross that paid for those sins. And you need him to come to your life, really. Ultimately, it's not uh, adding Jesus to your life. It's acknowledging that I'm helpless to save myself. I'm helpless to live my life apart from you. I need to give you my life. That's what it involves, all right? Now, I heard this testimony last week that really kind of flowed with this i wanted to share with you guys it was actually pretty awesome because like paul was given a awesome opportunity here to share the gospel um greg morrill one of our uh, elders is he sitting here where is he there he is over there okay he was telling me this awesome story his daughter had to share god's word with people so if you don't know isa she was a worship here a leader here for many years she's off to college now and she's majoring in music. That's her gifting, like a really big gifting, like in that she writes like symphonic music. She writes like sheet music, like symphonies, which is pretty crazy to me. I don't even fathom that, but she's gifted in that. And so um, she was sharing with her class a symphonic piece that she wrote. And she was explaining how the story behind it, like what inspired her. Basically, it was a psalm. And so the class is like, well, read us this psalm. Like we, we want to hear like what inspired it. And so she's like sharing the psalm with them as they're going through the music. And they're like, I can see this in the music. I can see like how it's telling a story. You should just have the psalm posted with this whenever it's played or wherever you share it. I just thought that was so great because I'm like, that's what God does, right? He's just, he desperately loves everyone and wants to reveal himself. So they don't even know they're being exposed to him. But, you know, they're like, this is awesome. But I was also just thinking as he's telling me this, that's like God's, plan for your life it's like this beautiful sympathy his whole plan he's got like a part for you to play in it and how you enter into that beautiful story that has the happiest of endings because we're going to end up in eternity with our god our lord and our savior but how you get into that plan is you receive his son amen amen so just like he had a plan for them, he has a plan for us. And it goes on in verse 25, and it says, as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us have been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, or the religious elite, because they did not recognize him, talking about Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Or in other words, the very fact that the Jews, the religious leaders, rejected Jesus in his first coming, even though all of the people should have recognized the one that they were preaching about when they were sharing the word. 
But the very fact that they rejected him fulfilled some of the very prophetic scriptures that were made hundreds of years before that they all knew and preached. That preached basically that they would reject him. And that that in itself was further proof. The fact that they rejected him, that in itself was further proof that he was who he said he was. That he was the Messiah that they were waiting for. Now, I want to point something out here because... Here's the thing. We can look at this and we can see that how are the Pharisees so stupid? I mean, they knew God's word and they, of all people, should have just recognized God's presence when he was right before them in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Right. We can cast stones, if you will. But here's the thing, church. We can be guilty of the same thing. They're actually accused, says in scripture, that they placed their hope in the the words of God or the scriptures themselves instead of the one who it was speaking about. And that's why they didn't recognize God. Basically, they had head knowledge. They knew all the right answers. They knew all the right things, but it never transitioned to their heart. They truly didn't know God. They truly didn't weren't worshipers of God. And here's the thing, church. Coming to church, reading your Bible, knowing the word, that's not what saves you. All right, you can do all those things, and I would guess in a room this big with this many people, there might be some people in this category that they have all the right answers. They know what they should be doing. They try to do those things, but it's all just religion. It's all just a head knowledge. They've never experienced the presence of God in their life, even though that is clearly, as we looked at last Sunday, what God saved us for, right? To be with him to have a relationship with him, to spend eternity with him. Everything else comes out of that. And if we don't have that, we're missing everything. And you might say, well, how do I know if I'm there? Well, what I would say is it'd be the same as the the Pharisees. God himself was right in front of them and they didn't even recognize his presence. If, If this is just kind of a mechanical thing, where you're just doing things to do it, to check boxes, and you're not experiencing the presence of God in your life. You're not seeing prayers answered and acknowledging it. You're not like, oh man, that word is for me. God just spoke to me. Or maybe through a brother or sister, like, oh man, what they just prayed, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Like that's experiencing God in your life, seeing evidence of him in your life. That doesn't happen all the time because I'm distracted a lot. But it does happen. When I draw near to him, he draws near to me and I see him in my life. I know he's real. That's what a relationship with God looks like. And that's what he wants with you. And the answer, if you are like, I I don't know if I have that. It's the same thing for anyone else. Well, repent and acknowledge your need for Jesus. Again, it's not just, Jesus is not someone you just add to your life. As the Bible says, you die to yourself. You understand that I am dead without him in my sin. I cannot save myself. I know that I suck at leading my life. I have I have done enough damage. I'm done with it. I want you to be Lord of my life. And it is giving your all, everything in you to him. To turning it over to him. So he can have his way with you, which is going to be great. Better than you can ever imagine. Amen? That's what it means. Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed 
And when they carried out all that was written of him, as the Old Testament prophetically spoke of how the Messiah would die, if you guys want to look on your own time, look at Psalm 22. It's a great example of that. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. There's one of those but gods in the Bible. I always have them highlighted. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So Paul gives three key elements of the gospel here that we need to note. All right. Number one, Jesus came or he was alive on this earth. That being significant because he was fully man, but he was also fully God. Jesus died. Number two, he literally died. People saw him crucified. And then number three, Jesus rose again. All right. Now, what he's making clear here is that these aren't just like events that somebody said happened. No, no. These are actual events that were witnessed, as he says here, by many people, thereby verifiable historically. You can't deny these things happened. He goes on later in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, and says over 500 people saw this. All right? You can go talk to them. I'm not the only one saying this. If one of us was in a convenience store, or one of us was a part of a trial where somebody went into a convenience store and robbed it, and you had one witness come up and tell you the exact story is the second witness, the third witness, the fourth witness, the fifth witness, what would you come to the conclusion of? It's true, right? Well, it's the same here. What is what he's trying to say to him? He's like, all these people saw this, not just us. This is truth, verifiable historically. I like what James Montgomery Boyce said. He says, Christianity is not just a philosophy or a set of ethics. Though it involves these things, essentially, Christianity is a proclamation of facts that concern what God has done. And that leads to the second thing I want you to note about how Paul told these people the good news or about Jesus. And that was he kept Jesus at the core of his message. Basically, the gospel is about what God has done through his son, Jesus. And it involves him coming to live amongst us. God sending a son who was equal with God, God in the flesh to sit, to live amongst us, which allowed him to be the perfect sacrifice because the Bible says none of us are righteous. None of us can live perfectly. So the only that proved Jesus was who he was in that he did live perfectly. He never did anything wrong. That allowed him to be the sacrifice. And that goes to the second thing. God was willing to sacrifice him so that the just price of your sins, my sins, could be paid for. That shows how much God loves us. You know, people say a price tag determines how much something's worth. Well, the price tag for you in your salvation was God's son. Imagine giving up your child for somebody else. That's what God did for you. And then the third thing, God raised him from the dead, proving who he was in God. Or Paul goes on to utilize God's word to explain how that proves who Jesus was. It goes on in verse 32 and it says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to his fathers, or in the Old Testament, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, him referencing Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So what he's saying is, when he, when the psalmist was writing that, you are my son, today I have begotten you, basically speaking on behalf of God, he was talking about 
Jesus prophetically hundreds of years before he ever came, which God himself, if you know scripture in Matthew 317 confirmed when Jesus was baptized and a voice from heaven said, this is my son, my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Amen. Now, something I want you to note here, just just a side thing. How many of you guys have had conversations with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses? Maybe some of you guys came out of out of those those false religions, those cults. Now, they this is one of those verses that if you have conversations with them, you can go around in circles with because they'll go to this and they'll say, "See, this is because what they say is Jesus is not equal with God. He was created by God. He was a good person, did some miraculous things." But he was like a prophet, like he, he wasn't equal with God. And they would say this is one of the proof texts in that begotten speaks of his birth. But if you look at this passage, that's not the context. Context to under, is key to understanding scripture. And the context of this that Paul's using is resurrection, right? Not incarnation. He's speaking of the womb, not the womb, but rather the tomb, Okay. Jesus was begotten or proved to be the son of God the day he was raised from the dead. Is that made him unique among all people? And you might say, well, there were other people in the Bible that were raised from the dead. Yeah, but guess what happened to them? They died again. Okay, so they're not like Jesus in that he's alive and well today and we will see him face to face. All right. He rose from the dead and he stayed alive. Okay, and that is what proved he was the son of God. And that's why that prophetic word or that speaking there in Psalm was speaking of him. And that's what, what he's pointing out. And it goes on in verse 34 and it says, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to con- corruption. The idea is that he wouldn't decompose or do what normally, if any of us die, 100, 100% we're going to decompose, unless we're raptured and stuff. But having said that, if you die, you're going to decompose just like a normal body. But it says, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David or the promises that were made to David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, this is Psalm 1610, uh, a psalm that's attributed to David. You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep or he died and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption or his body did what any other body would do when it died. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So Paul's making it clear here, this psalm that's attributed to David, Psalm 16, he's like, it couldn't have been talking about David because his body stayed dead when he died. It was a promise given to David, as verse 34 points out, but it wasn't to be applied to him. It was actually prophetically speaking ahead of the Messiah who Jesus proved to be because he, his body didn't see corruption. Amen? This is the reason why we know the Bible is true. It's like no other holy book in this world, all right? Because there's a huge amount of it that's prophetic. Some of it's still to come, but a lot of it that's already happened, it proves itself. This is why when people don't talk about, want to talk about Bible prophecy, I'm like, why not? It's one of the reasons why the Bible we can know is 100% true because it's the only thing that accurately predicted the future and is going to predict the future. Amen? All right. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed or justified, is the idea, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses or by works or by doing good things. Man's greatest need is God's greatest deed, and that is forgiveness of your sins, because here's the thing. Every single one of us is born with a nature to disobey God and do what is wrong. 
You see that in babies from the moment they're born. To be violent and have tempers when they not get their way. That's every single one of us in here, okay? 100 out of 100. Not one of us is born good. And despite what some would say, you don't learn a sinful nature. You are born to do what's wrong. It can be added to depending on what you grow up under. But that's not, it's there already, okay? And there's nothing you can do in your own power to stop yourself from acting that way. And then also, there's no amount of good things we could ever do to outweigh the bad things because God doesn't grade on a curve. Here's the reality. If there's any evil in you, if there's any bad things you've done, a perfectly just God, which God is, has to deal with it. And what the Bible says that penalty for sin is, is, is the, in Romans 6.23, is the wages of sin is death. The penalty is death. And all, if you really think about sin and how destructive it is to you and to others, you understand why the penalty is so severe. Because the effects go on for years. I mean, there's sin that I did in my life that has had lasting consequences. I'm thankful for the day that I'm with the Lord and those consequences will end when I'm not living in this fallen world. And I know that there's nothing I've done that I can't be redeemed from, but it doesn't mean that those consequences go away for the bad actions I've taken. That's exactly why God does not want you to sin because he knows the damage it does to you and others. All right? And so that's why the wages of it are so strict. But here's the good news. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us up from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Amen. And we've got the greatest privilege in the world because that's good news to tell people it. That's what Paul's saying. Man, I'm sharing the best news in the world with you. And the reality is when you hear that good news, it demands a response. There's no middle ground. There's no, I'll choose, maybe choose Jesus later. No, it's a yes or a no. And Paul goes on to kind of tell them the consequences for making a bad decision. He says here in verse 40, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish or be judged. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So Paul quotes Habakkuk um, chapter one, verse five here, warning these people, is that warning went out to the Israelites that don't you mock God or don't, in a sense, think this is just too good to be true. I don't know if I can believe this. I don't know. It says it just sounds unreal. He's like, if you take that, if you take that attitude, as he says here, you'll perish or you'll be judged. You'll bring judgment upon yourself. And that's what Jesus tells us too in John three seventeen through 21. He says, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. 
There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light, that being Jesus, came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. You see, when you hear the gospel, you have a choice. You either go to the light, you understand that this is true. I see this in my life. I'm wicked, I'm evil, I continually do things wrong, and I need God to save me from that. I need him to help me. Or you, in a sense, keep yourself in the darkness. The light's been shed for you, but you're like, no, 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 I don't want to acknowledge that. I don't want to believe that. Because I just want to stay keeping doing the things that I'm doing, even though I know they're bad. And I don't, if I acknowledge God, then I have to acknowledge they're bad. I'm going to keep doing that. And you, in a sense, act like the truth isn't the truth, even though it is the truth. You act like it's not good news, even though it is good news. But God, in his love for you, gave you the free will to make that choice. He's done everything that needed to be done to be saved, but you have to make that choice. Because he wants a loving relationship with you. And a loving relationship is not to force you into anything you don't want. If you would rather remain in your sin and slowly destroy yourself and others, then he will allow you to stay there. Our sin has to be dealt with one way or another, either at the cross or at the end of our lives. We're all going to have to stand before God. And we're going to have to, if you have not chosen Jesus, and you're going to have to prove to him how everything you did in your life was right and good. And there's not a single one of us in this world that will ever be able to do that. And this leads to the third thing I want you to note about how Paul told these people the good news. And that was he made clear what rejection of Jesus would lead to. People have to understand what they need to be saved from in order to understand they need a savior. Hot topic right now is mandatory vaccinations. You know, the Bible does talk about the principle of mandatory vaccinations. The one mandatory vaccination it says is the blood of Jesus. Because I'll tell you, there's a greater disease than COVID or anything else out there, and it's sin because it affects every single person that's born, and it's a 100% death rate. And the death the Bible talks of is an eternal death. Actually, in my devos today, I was reading Second Thessalonians. And uh, let me just read this to you because this is a great example. We think of hell as like a place with fire and torment. And the Bible does say it's like that, but you have to understand what the greatest torment is. How many of you guys have made bad decisions in your life and you, you kind of regret those? I mean, you know you're forgiven of them and stuff, but there's consequences that are lasting. You're like, man, I wish I never did that. So the, the most horrible thing about hell is understanding that you had the ultimate chance to make the best decision of your life and you can't make it once you're there. And you will spend eternity knowing that, that you were separated from God in his glory by your own doing. That'll be the worst consequence you could ever face, and you're stuck there. It actually says that in Second Thessalonians 1, 5, it, it says, or verse 5, it says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with the mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord 
and from the glory of his might. That's what makes hell hell. That for eternity, you're separated from the presence of God in his glory. When he's made a way for every one of us to be restored to him. And the thing is, judgment may sound like bad news, but the reality is, as I explained before, it's surely what our sin deserves. And knowing the bad news is what makes the good news so good. Because despite that's what every single one of us deserves, God in his grace and his love for you made a way for you to completely avoid it through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. You truly can't understand how amazing the love and grace of God is unless you understand how wicked and wretched you are and what you deserve for it. Amen? Amen. And once you understand just how good the good news is, you're not going to have a problem telling anyone about it. All right? Because how many of us have problems not telling people good news? I struggle with it. We were just planning a vacation for the future, and like, you know, there's that. My wife and I were just kind of like, oh, maybe we'll just keep this on the down low and surprise the kids. And sure enough, the next day, I'm just like, guess what we're doing? It's, it's like, I can't hold good news in, you know? And it's like, when we understand the magnitude of the good news, it's like, you won't hold it in. You will just tell people it all around you. And now we're going to get to see how the people respond to this glorious good news, but you're going to have to wait till next week to do that. So anyways, I'm going to have the worship team come up. Here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to first and foremost celebrate this good news, okay? We, you guys have those communion elements. We're going to go ahead and do that first and foremost before we get into a time of response in worship. But I just want to reiterate to you guys, here's the thing. The gospel is not too good to be true. It's actually so good that it has to be true because only a sovereign God, an all-powerful God could save you from your sins and only a loving God would do such a thing. It's the fact of what the gospel says is what makes it absolutely believable and true. And here's the thing. It's for every single one of us. My hope is that most of us have received that truth, given our lives over to Jesus surrendered him over knowing we need him repented of our sin and turned to him but if you haven't done that you can do that here in this place today and i would encourage you like i said you don't know what tomorrow holds you only get that chance on this side of eternity and you cannot run the risk i'm not trying to scare you into doing it the question is why would you not do it Because you're not going to find, as I said earlier, what you're looking for in anything in this world. As you might have noticed, this world just keeps getting more messed up, more hard, more dark. And that's because that's what sin does. It corrupts everything it touches. And even the things that maybe you considered good at one point, they're no longer enjoyable and they're no longer good. And it's going to keep going that way. And that's why God has given us something to hope for. That's what we were singing about in that last song. We're getting ready. Because as this world grows darker, it's easy to see that and just, I'm not of this world. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm looking forward to the marriage supper. I'm looking forward to the celebration when things are restored to the way that they're intended to be. That is my hope. That is what I'm living for. As long as I'm here in this world, I'm just a witness for Christ. I want everyone to be able to be a part of that. But that's it. I'm not living for this world. I'm living for him. That's why we worship. That's why we praise. God has given us so much to praise him for. Why would you not receive that? I don't know if it's true. I don't know. God's given you everything you need to know it's true. You can look at this whole room and change people. You have his word. You have creation which speaks of him. 
as complicated as it is, you have all the evidence, but it does take faith. It takes faith on your part to choose to believe. And when you do that, God will reveal himself to you. But let me ask you this, can you take the chance in it being true and you not believing? That's scary. But in this place today, you can talk to God. You can have that conversation. You can receive him as your Lord and Savior. Actually, we're going to do communion together. And when we're doing this communion, what we're doing is... Yeah, thank you, Benny. Um, we're remembering God. We're remembering Jesus is in his sacrifice on the cross. We're remembering the things we talked about today. We take this bread and this wafer and we remember his body that was broken for us. That's what Jesus said it spoke of. And we drink this juice and we remember his blood that was spilled that atoned for our sins, paid the price for our sins. These are things Jesus said to do this often in remembrance of him because he knew that we have a tendency to kind of forget and lose the significance of what's been done for us. So we try to do this often as a church because Jesus told us to. And we want to take that time to acknowledge our salvation, the good news, so we can remind ourselves amidst all the hard things we face that I'm saved, man. I'm only here for a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And nothing can thwart the will of God's or the the will of the Lord for me in my life. And I know it's good. Even if I don't see it now, it'll prove to be good. So that's what we're celebrating when we do this. But if you're not, if you're not somebody that believes that, don't do this. Because it, in a sense, is taking it in an unworthy manner. You're not giving significance to that. Now, here's what I encourage you to do. Get saved today. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then come and take communion. And if you're somebody that wants to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we're going we're to do in this last song, we're going to have our prayer team around the room. And I'm going to allow you to take communion on your own during this time. And then if you're somebody that needs to receive the Lord, come up. Come up and get prayer. We'll lead you in a prayer to do just that. If you need prayer for anything else, like if the Lord's speaking to you about something and you need prayer, what we're doing in, in praying, the Bible says we're not to bear our, we're to bear each other's burdens. We're not to basically try to go things through things in this life alone because we're one family in Christ. And when one of us hurts, we all hurt. And when one of us thrives, we all thrive. So we share those burdens with each other and we lift them up. And God does something special with that. He encourages us. He builds us up. He comforts us. And so it's an act of humility, acknowledging like, man, I'm just as messed up as anyone else. And I need prayer. I need help. And people come alongside you. So come up and get prayer. And then we'll praise it. We'll spend this time praising the Lord as well. And then I'll close in prayer. So let me pray really quick. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray right now. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the reminder of salvation. Sometimes I think we can kind of, oh, I've heard this, I know this. Lord, I don't want to be that. We don't want to be that way. It should amaze us and blow our minds every time we hear the gospel. That you would save people like us that don't deserve it at all. That we are sitting here now through our faith in you and, and saved for eternity. That there is a house being prepared for us that you said you'd surely come back to get us to take us to. That there's a celebration that starts the moment we enter that enter into your presence that's going to be going on for all eternity. That things will be the way you intended when we're with you. No more sorrow, no more hurt, no more pain, no more suffering. Oh Lord, we yearn for those days. And we thank you so much for doing everything needed so we could be 
with you. Be with us during this time, Lord. I really sense that you're drawing people to yourself. May they step out in faith and respond. In Jesus' name, amen.